You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Why did I say that? Why did those words come out of my mouth? What was I thinking? You ever found yourself asking those questions? Um, I have. You ever feel like you, you told a joke that you wish that you could take back, made a thoughtless comment that you wish you hadn't? And you wish sometimes you could hit rewind or drag the slider back and get a do-over with some careless words? I have. And the problem isn't new, you know that. The problem isn't you, you know that. See if any of these ring a bell. I remember this one from kindergarten. Secret secrets are no fun. Secret secrets hurt someone, right? Or there's this one, which is kind of like that idea grown up. It says, better to keep your mouth closed and let everyone think you're an idiot than open it and remove all doubt. When I think about my life as a Christ follower, my role as a dad, a husband, a son, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, a pastor, few things get me in trouble more or more quickly than my mouth. And this is one spot where I'm really glad most of you are watching online because I can't hear the audible amen in the room. And you're the same way though, right? But to make the matter even more profound or more acute or more pronounced, it isn't just our mouths, is it? This idea of self-expression spills over from pixels that issue forth from our phones, posts that fly from our thumbs without a second thought. There is such a thing as a theology of Instagram and Facebook. I think we're just scared to death of what it might actually mean for us. See, we are people made in the image of God, and part of that image, I believe, is the need for self-expression. But that self-expression gets wrapped around the crank of our own self-centeredness and warped by our inherent selfishness, and we express ourselves to defend ourselves, to advance ourselves, to justify ourselves, and to protect ourselves. Our need for self-expression can be our greatest asset or our greatest liability. Welcome to James chapter 3. So this is week six of our 11-week series in the book of James, and you've heard it a few times by now that James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's intensely practical, and where we're headed this morning is one reason why. Deeply relatable, personally challenging, instantly connecting. James 3 introduces one of the toughest teachings in the book, and this is James' most extensive confrontation. He spills more ink on this subject and spends more energy hitting this issue than any other, and it's not hard to understand why. James is, of course, talking about our words, our posts, our texts. And just a heads up, I'm going to bet that everybody listening this morning, whether you're watching online on Facebook um, or attending an in-person micro-gathering this week, is going to feel the incredible tension, but also the beautiful hope woven throughout James's words. So last week, we were standing at the Overlook, James chapter 2. And I love that text. It's simply beautiful. And in case you missed it, you can go back and watch online, nchapel.online. But today, we're setting our feet back to the trail. And chapter 3 is absolutely an uphill climb. And so without further intro, let's just get into it. So James starts off chapter 3 
with a really curious kind of angle. Instead of launching right into the issue like he normally does, his first move comes by way of a warning. And here's what he says, James chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, who exactly is he talking about here? When he says teacher, what does he mean? Well, James has two people in mind, one more broad and one more narrow. So let's take the wide-angle lens first. Broadly, James has in mind anybody who handles and teaches the Word of God in the context of the local church. So here at the North Canton Chapel, uh, this looks like group leaders, missional community leaders, ABF leaders, Bible study leaders, student leaders, children's ministry leaders. Quick aside, if you think that the expectation goes up as you go up the age scale, you've actually got that inverted. Jesus, remember, reserves his harshest worries and his strictest judgments for those who cause little ones to miss truth and fall into sin. And that's why I cringe when I hear student ministry defined as just hanging out with students or, or children's ministry as babysitting or childcare. No, that's discipleship. Our best leaders go there. So broadly, James has that picture in mind. Anyone who teaches and handles the word of God in the context of the local church. But as we narrow the lens, we need another slice of cultural background to kind of help us out here. So remember James's audience. He's writing to Jewish people in the first century who have chosen to follow Jesus. So James grew up in Galilee. And early in the first century, when James would have been a small boy, Galilee was home to some of those, the most religious Jewish people in Jewish culture. More teachers came out of Galilee than anywhere else in the world. That meant that Jewish schools sprung up, schools headed by rabbis, which is a general term translated as teacher, and it's what James is pulling from here. And here's what's really cool. First century Jewish schools are very different than schools we think of today. I remember for me, like desperately trying to learn enough just to pass freshman algebra. Um, for me, that was just not my sweet spot. So it's like, what do I have to do just to pass? I want to get out of here. I just cannot get it. And I still don't get it. So... But that's totally different than in the first century. Now, we are desperate to get what the teacher wants us to learn. But in first century Galilee, students are desperate to become who the teacher is. That's an interesting insight we need to file away to think about why Jesus' disciples called him rabbi so often. They want to become who he is. And now we can understand James's caution. There's a big difference between a theology of church that helps you learn something and a theology of church that helps you become something. And so now as a grown adult, James is writing to Jewish believers scattered across the world and he throws up a huge yellow light and he says, hey, time out. This whole teacher thing, this is not meant for fun. Slow down. There is a harsher, stricter judgment reserved for those who handle the word of God and teach the word of God vocationally. Now, James doesn't really elaborate on why that is, but it's not too hard to see why. Let me just suggest a couple of reasons. Teachers can do greater damage to their followers because of their influence. Ever been there? Ever read stories like that in the newspaper? Teachers are responsible for holding the line of truth that comes with doctrine and spiritual development. Hebrews talks about this when it says that pastors keep a watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Kind of freaks me out a little bit. Just speaking for me personally, 
I've noticed in my life that teachers, when you handle the word of God regularly, it's easier for us to, to nurse this kind of secret pride because we have a platform, right? Talk about a power trip. Like 45 minutes a week, you get to sit and listen to me speak at you, right? I'm in your living room right now where you're able to watch here at North Canton Chapel. And not to get too dark, I've also found that um, for me, and I know other pastors would say the same thing, I feel like the enemy targets us with a sniper rifle because of the power implicit in the word when it is taught and proclaimed faithfully. And so James goes, whoa, hold on. Now, I don't want to get too self-conscious, um, but I realize the irony of teaching this text this morning, right? Like everybody does. When you come to teach a text about teaching, it's kind of like, a you know, it's a knot. This is a text that sits really heavy on me. And so just to stay personal for a second, um, you know, I'm, I'm a young pastor. I'm 39. By and large, we're a very young staff. And um, what that means is we're going to make mistakes because we are young. There are things that I don't see about myself and about my world, about our church, about our culture. But hear me, the thing that keeps me up at night and literally does, and I would say this is true of most of our staff here, is I don't want to get this wrong. Because if I get this wrong, Brandon Marshall, apart from this, does not have all that much to offer. And that's not false humility or anything like that. That's, that's a recognition of who I want to be about as a pastor and who I want our church to be about. And that goes for the rest of our staff at the North Canton Chapel. As talented and committed and as skilled and amazing and as dedicated as we are, if we get this wrong, if our work becomes detached from the Word, if our lives become distant from the incarnate Word, Jesus, and if our hearts become disconnected from what God has already laid out for us, we have failed before we've even opened our mouths. Now, it's not hard to see what James is trying to get at here. James's larger concern for this first century church starts to move to the surface. The church does not need intellectuals who can impress a crowd. The church does not need charismatic leaders who can influence a crowd. The church does not need stoic leaders who can just pacify a crowd. The church needs leaders who have been and are being changed by Jesus. And guys, that's like the most com uncomfortable place to be as a leader. Because it means vulnerability, transparency, humility, teachability, and a host of other attributes that don't come easy to anybody, much less when your spiritual life is so often lived in public. But here's the truth that I, I live with, and I think it's what James wants all teachers to really think on. I'm a shepherd, but I'm also a sheep. I submit to the same authoritative written word as you do. I'm learning to listen to the same voice of the good shepherd as you are. Our staff, we are called, we are equipped, we are leaning in, but we're in the same sheepfold. And so James's concern, it's a concern that we really all ought to share, is that the church, locally and globally, shouldn't ever become a gathering about God, but it should be the movement of God. And James rightly puts all that responsibility at the words of teachers. So no pressure. <laughs> now, James, after this warning, almost a prohibition, he's going to take a step back because um, he's going to zoom out, widen the lens further, and include everyone. So starting in verse 3, um, he's talking about not just teachers or pastors or staff members at a church, but now he's going to reflect on a very real tension that everybody feels, and I know you feel it this morning, and here it is. Why can't I control my mouth? <laughs> and when he zooms all the way out, we'll see something that is absolutely terrible and absolutely beautiful. So let's pick it up in verse 3. Here's what he says. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. 
Look at the ships also. They are so large and driven by strong winds, but they're guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot there directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set, and is set on fire by hell. Whoa, James. Here James gives us three invitations that are rooted in these really three simple but very powerful metaphors. James says, think about the bit of a horse, this thing in its mouth that moves it around. Think about the rudder of a ship and think about a little spark that's set to a dry forest. Each one of these three things has things in common. Bits, rudders, and sparks, they're all very small. At first glance, they don't seem like that much of a big deal. Words can be that way, can't they? Words seem so small and innocent, we don't think about them that much. And James subversively wants us to conclude that is part of the problem. Second thing, bits, rudders, and sparks, even though they're small, they can make a big difference. Now, James hits this one more on the nose. This is harder to miss his point. Words have weight. And reflecting on your own personal life, I'm willing to bet that you can think back on a time when positive words were spoken over you, and it meant a lot. The opposite's also true. You can probably remember a time where somebody spoke negative words into you and they sit with you for a while. Small words make a big difference. Third observation, which is kind of between the lines of text here, bits, rudders, and sparks, there's always someone who controls them. Did you notice that? There's this hidden unmentioned third element in each one of these metaphors, is there? For the bit and the horse, there's the rider. For the rudder and the ship, there's the pilot. For the spark and the forest, there's the fire starter. So who is that? Well, hold on to that for just a bit because it's going to come up again. But for now, here's where James wants to get to his main point, And he continues widening the lens. Just watch what he shows us next. Verse 7. He says, For every beast or every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Now you've got to catch what he says. He didn't say the tongue cannot be tamed. He said no human being can tame the tongue. He's absolutely setting us up for something that we're going to see in just a minute. But for now, we've got to see something absolutely terrible that no human being wants to see. All three of these word pictures support, amplify, and build on each other to say one thing. When it comes to my mouth, my thumbs, my tireless need for self-expression, I have a problem and I can't fix it. I want to take a look at a practical example of this for a minute. Social psychologist Lauren Beig has done a ton of work on what I would say is like the juiciest, darkest, subtlest, sweetest sin of all, gossip. Gossips, talking about somebody in a way that you wouldn't if they were there in the room. Now get this, in her work, Lauren Beig estimates that 60% of all adult conversation is about somebody who isn't there. 60%. Kind of makes you feel a little bit paranoid, doesn't it? But what's most interesting to me about gossip is how we try to soften it. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. We say these things instinctively. We kind of back into it. We ease into it because if we know that if we just charged in and said exactly what we were thinking about somebody else, like we'd be really terrible people. So we say things like this. Like, well, I really shouldn't say this, but... 
or oh, you, I don't really want to say this out loud or I shouldn't say this or don't you didn't hear this from me or don't tell anybody I told you, right? Or how about the disclaimers? These are my favorite because um, we think that by slapping a sticker on the front of our gossip, we're justifying it. And it sounds like this, like, I really like the guy. I really do. But dot, 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 right? Or I'm not trying to be mean, but blah, 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 blah. Or I don't want to throw her under the bus, but blah, blah, blah. Or the most thinly veiled and embarrassing of all says this. I don't want to make him look bad, but blah, 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 blah. Yes, you do. You just don't want to be known as the kind of person who does those things. You're desperately trying to preserve your reputation at the same time you're trying to destroy somebody else's. And your disclaimer on the front end of it is a pathetic attempt to justify yourself. Who do we think we're kidding? It's divisive and it's causing dissension because we love power more than people, drama more than depth, and reputation more than relationship. And we don't want to see it that way because it would mean that we have to kill our pride. And so if we're going to be faithful to the text, what James has for us right here, we've got to stop and admit something. I have a problem and I can't fix it. And James is going to lighten the load, but I, I think we need to sit in this just for a minute because I still don't think there's some of you that don't believe me yet. I want to give you a way of looking at sin, <clears throat> especially gossip, that's uh, hopefully going to help you out. So G.K. Chesterton said it like this. He said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. What he means is that when we act sinfully, usually that sinful behavior has its root in a very deep human need. So gossip then is this distortion of good, true, deep human needs that we ought to listen to. But thanks to sin, those needs get twisted and come out in incredibly terrible, destructive forms. So before we go any further with James, I want to invite you to consider three deep human needs that we've got to recognize. And then how to speak gospel truth into them. And each one of these three relates to our speech or our texts or our posts, right? So first... Recognize your need for connection. Recognize your need for connection. I think if we could tweak Chesterton's quote, um, it would say something like this. Every man or woman who gossips is really looking for authentic human connection. And in my experience, that's absolutely true. Gossip fast tracks friendships because it gets you in the inner circle. Gossip establishes humor and rules, right? Because now we're in charge of everything. When I see someone who loves to gossip, lives for the personal drama, I see someone who's knocking on the door of a brothel called connection. And I understand gossip. I understand why we do it. I understand why it's so attractive. I understand why it's so pervasive. Gospel, or gospel, gossip is all of those things because it's easy, it makes sense, and it works. At least in the short game. But you know what I notice? When you become the kind of person who loves to run your mouth off about other people, it isn't long before other people start to think you're doing the same thing about them. And then, after that, people don't trust you, and then they put boundaries up to keep you out, and you end up alone. Gossip connects you in the short term, but isolates you over the long term. And guys, here's the good news of the gospel. The gospel gives me a better way to get connection. The gospel says I am meant for deep human connection, but I refuse to take the shortcut that sin offers me. You're absolutely created for deep, meaningful, powerful, transformative, nourishing human connection, but you were never created for human connection at the expense of somebody else's dignity. 
If you develop the habit of vilifying somebody else's character, over time, you actually numb yourself to the ability to give and receive true connection. So recognize your need for connection, but refuse to take the easy way out. Second need, we've got to recognize if we're going to gospel our heart against gossip. Recognize your need to be safe. You need to be safe. The true love of the gossiper is the power to control the narrative. And here's the way this works. We figure that if we can control the story, control people's perceptions about other people, control the way things happen, what people think, control building a narrative, we think if we can have all those things, then we can have control. But you know what the love of control really is? The love of control is really sin masquerading as the deep need for safety. Now, it's not hard to see what this has to do with gossip. If I can control the narrative, if I can get you to think negatively about somebody else, then I have protected myself. I am safe, at least for now. And so here's one of those great gospel truths that we need to be reminded of. God is great, so I do not have to be in control. You've heard that before. Either you trust God's ability to let the truth be known over time, or you trust your ability to control it. And spoiler alert, only one of those things works. If God is great, the truth will come to light. If God is great, he will judge correctly. If God is great, he is writing the story. If God is great, he will hold people accountable. You are only as safe as your God is great, and God will only be as great as eager you can be to release this sense of control that we all have. So recognize that your need to be safe is real. And let that need drive you to God. Third need, and then we'll keep moving. Recognize your need to be valued. Your need to be valued. One of the standout benefits that gossip actually offers us is this ability to feel superior, right? It makes us believe that we've got a good bead on something, that we know something somebody else doesn't, that we've got the inside track, or we've got some kind of like inside scoop. And here's the thing. Did you ever notice how gossip only targets people who make us feel uneasy about our own weaknesses? Think about that for a minute. We only gossip about people when they threaten our value. You want to feel insecure about, a, about being a parent? You get stuck in that trap? You're like, oh, I'm a terrible parent. Easy solution. Gossip about somebody else's parenting. You're like, oh, those two. Poof. You feel insecure as a spouse? Gossip about somebody else's marriage. Feeling insecure about your looks? Gossip about somebody else's performance and, and appearance. You're feeling bad about your life's direction? Gossip about somebody else's train wreck life and go, man, I'm not that bad. Why are we doing that? When we vilify somebody else, we're temporarily adding value to ourselves. It's childish, it's sophomoric, and it's so ungospel, it's not even funny. But we do it because we have a deep-seated human need to be valuable, and gossip gets us that value, but it's like a flash in the pan. It's quick, and then it is gone. It just evaporates. And so here comes again one of these old, timeless gospel truths. God is gracious, so I don't have to prove myself. I love to cling to that one. If God has forgiven you, if God has justified you, if Christ is your judge, why do you care so much about the opinion of other people? You don't have to prove yourself. You don't need somebody else's control and approval. If the creative God of the universe says that you are his child, you do not need to construct a flimsy narrative to buttress your own personhood. You're valuable because he says you're valuable. 
Your need to be valued will only ever always be met in God himself. That's the crux of what James's letter is all about. You want to be a Christian? Then sink your roots in Christ. You want to act like a Christian is supposed to act? Then dig deep into Christ. So what does that mean for you? I'll sum up all three of these needs and then we'll move on. Get into some of those great gospel identity passages, like Galatians 2.20. It's one of my favorites. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's identity stuff. Romans, 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, we are no longer slaves to sin. That is a good thing to tell yourself. The whole first chapter of Ephesians, it says we are bought, we are predestined, we're called, we're sealed, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're justified, we're adopted. 1 Peter 2, 9, it says you are chosen, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, God's special possession, that you might declare what? You might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. We are created to be worshipers of our new identity. And when those identity messages seep into your soul, there isn't room for anything else. It's a good thing to remember when we have to choose what we're gonna talk about. I don't need to seek my identity anywhere else because my Heavenly Father has already given it to me. What a wonderful thing to sit with. Now, James has brought us to this terrible reality, right? I have a problem, but I can't fix it. Now watch where he goes next. Having pointed out our inability, James wants to drive his point home. Let's pick it up again in verse 8. He says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Don't you hear him grieving that there? Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. How about that for a slew of metaphors, right? You got fresh water, salt water, olives, figs, grapes. Like, what is going on? And then he just leaves it there with a question mark. <laughs> I told you that James was theology masquerading as poetry. All three of those word pictures above, right? The sparks and the bits. And it's just like that here. All of these metaphors, all these word pictures, they conspire to teach us one main, crystal clear, unavoidable, uncomfortable, but very necessary point. And here it is. A reckless mouth is always connected to a rebellious heart. A reckless mouth is always connected to a rebellious heart. They're two parts of the same problem. And James gets it that you can't separate them. He's saying, look, if your life is fresh water, Great, that means that you've got a spring in your heart that is a fresh spring. But if you've got salt water, it's because you've got some undrinkable water down there. If you've got figs coming out, guess what? You're a fig tree. If you've got olives, guess what? You're an olive tree. You see how this builds on where James was last week? Faith and works. When you see the fruit, you know what kind of tree they are. When you taste the water, you know what kind of spring you've got there. But then when you hear a Christian talk, when you get a Christian's texts, when you see our Instagram, you like and read our posts, you know for sure who you're dealing with. These are all very common cultural images for James's audience who are familiar with fresh water from Galilean springs and salt water from the Dead Sea. 
and the fruit tree metaphor, you have to know that's a super strong allusion and an echo back to Jesus' own teaching where he said, my disciples will bear much fruit which glorifies the Father. Our self-expression, whatever form it takes, does this phenomenal theological service. It reveals our hearts to us. And we just don't like that, though, because it's hard. And so James, <clears throat> while he chides us for our inconsistency, Sometimes you're fresh, sometimes you're salt, sometimes you're olives, sometimes you're figs. He's really pointing us to something much deeper. And I love this because it's where the sweet, soft melody of the gospel, buried under layers of poetry and word pictures, starts to be heard. Here's what James wants us to see. I have a problem. I can't fix it. But God can. I have a problem. I can't fix it. But God can can. I don't need behavior modification. I need transformation. See how he just leads us beautifully right to that wonderful old gospel idea. And you can see why transformation is so much more wonderfully beautiful than this stodgy, wrist-slapping, stuffy, boring behavior modification. Because some of you have heard James so far this morning, and you're sitting in your head, and I know what you're doing. You're going, all right, I'll try better. I get it. Uh, all right, I'll watch my words. I'll clean it up like bad mouth. But all that does is treat the symptom when I've got bigger problems because my reckless mouth is always tied to my rebellious heart. The only way to fix my mouth is to change my heart. I have a problem. I can't fix it. But God can. Do you know why you say hateful things? It's because you have a hateful heart. Do you know why you're impatient with your kids? It's because your heart's broken. You know why you can't apologize to your spouse? It's because you're prideful. Why do you lash out on Facebook or wherever? It's because your life has become racked by bitterness and you've given the real estate of, of your heart over to these lesser, smaller, terrible things. Why don't we speak out when we should? Because we're cowards. Why do I love to overprove my points? Because I'm insecure. So here's where we gotta drive this today. <clears throat> Nobody, nobody gets out of James chapter 3 unscathed. We've all got burn marks up and down because this touches everybody. We've blown it and we know it and we know we're going to blow it again. So any teaching on this text has to include and conclude with one idea. God's heart always, always, always bends toward mercy. The Old Testament says that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord loves us. We know our failures, but aren't you thankful that the gospel says that even though our tongues and our words and our postures change, our status never changes? So I made such a big deal about the cross last week when we were in James chapter 2. When my sins are covered by the blood of Jesus, if I trust him and him alone for my salvation, then my biggest mistakes, my biggest regrets, all the stuff I wish I could take back, actually becomes my biggest causes for worship. My regrets are redeemed. My apathy becomes empathy. My selfishness becomes selflessness. And so let me ask you the question that James is begging us to be courageous enough to ask. Are you letting Jesus change your heart? Or are you just trying to change your mouth? Are you letting Jesus change your heart? Don't mishear me. I'm not asking, are you saved? That was last week. I'm not asking, like, have you confessed Christ? That's part of what he's saying here. But beneath all that, there's something deeper. The gospel is a point, but it's also a process. This isn't a one and done kind of thing. Are you letting Jesus change your heart today, now, this afternoon? 
Does Jesus have control of your heart? If not, why not? And so I'm just going to give you one point of application because James 3 is heavy enough. And I'm going to dare you to actually do it. Here it is. Go to one person that knows you really well. This could be your spouse. It could be your best friend. If you're a parent, it could even be your kids. And ask them a series of questions. Things like this. What do you think about how I use my words? Do I use my words to build up or tear down? When I speak, am I making much of Jesus? When I post, engage, or whatever online, do my words show that my heart is soft toward the things of Christ? Am I building his kingdom or my own? Those are a group of very courageous questions that I don't think are very easy to ask. But I'm going to challenge you. Have the conversation Listen to what they say back to you and then commit to changing. First, pray and beg Jesus to soften your heart. And if you want to go one step further, for those of you that are watching online this morning, if you're watching on Facebook, hop back on and make a comment below in this thread and just say a quick prayer. Write it down, asking Jesus to soften your own heart. I promise you, you'll get more encouragement than you could probably imagine. So why those words come out of my mouth? Why did I say those things? How could I be so stupid and so thoughtless? James says, it's actually not here. It's here. We have a problem. We can't fix it. But by Christ, God can. Let me pray for us. God, this is another heavy text from James. These are hard words because we all feel them so personally. We all know that we've blown it. And so, Father, would you do two things right now? Would you remind us that we are yours? And then would you show us how to live like your children? Remind us that we belong to you, God. Shore up this insecurity that maybe we've blown it too far, that you're going to turn your face away from us. Remind us that that would never happen. But then, God, would you show us how to live in light of our identity as Christians and let it start with our words. So, Father, give us courage. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.